be seated. I'd like to imagine for a moment that you're the captain of an iron ore tanker and you're assigned to make your very last journey across Lake Superior. In preparation, you seek the advice of two experts that are going to help you to make this journey safely. The first assures you of smooth sailing. He prophesies gentle breezes, warm sun, calm waters. Dolphins will leap from the sparkling waters as you go across, and gulls will shriek gleefully overhead as you make your way to the other side safely. You kind of kick back in your chair and you put your hands behind your head and you take a deep breath, and as he's talking and telling you how this is going to go so beautifully, you actually begin to nod off, to doze there, because all is so, so easy, what's before you. Now the second guide offers a very different perspective, and he says to you that you're going to face choppy waters, some strong threatening winds may rise up, even a possible sleet storm that may threaten the ship. Now you shake off your grogginess and you sit at the end of your chair and you concentrate very carefully trying to prepare for this difficult journey that may be facing you. The journey's doable, the guide explains, but you must be vigilant. Expecting and preparing for dangerous conditions. Which guide do you want to hear? Well, we might say, and I think it'd probably be wise to say, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter who I want to hear between these two individuals. It matters who's going to be right. That's who I've got to hear. Well, it's amazing how many Christians never take that common sense approach when it comes to following Jesus Christ to the shores of eternity. The Lord Christ has come into this world. He has called followers out to follow Him. And many Christians never ask that question. They choose churches that tell them what they want to hear. That following Jesus is a smooth sailing, picnic weather sort of endeavor. Jesus' own counsel, as the ultimate guide for this journey, His own counsel was that choppy, threatening seas are ahead for His church as she journeys to glory. He did not minimize or ignore this reality. He said to us, He's not a false advertiser. He said, If you want to follow Me, then take up your cross and follow Me where I go. He did not say, pick up your picnic basket and your lawn chairs and let's hit the beach for a day in the sun. He said, pick up your cross. Jesus told His disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. Our journey through the book of 1 Peter in recent weeks has delivered this sort of clear-minded counsel. Clear counsel about the choppy seas of persecution that the church will face. Now, we live in a land of religious liberty. 
And we do not face the levels of physical and governmental resistance that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face today. As I prayed earlier for Shambu and Molly Day, they're in a tough, tough spot. There are missionaries, there are Christians who we know by name that have been murdered there in very recent times. Homes have been burned because people are Christians. We don't face that kind of persecution. But what the book of 1 Peter does for us, first of all, I think it helps us to understand that there are levels of persecution, but what it also does is it identifies us with the persecuted people of God worldwide. We look at those who suffer persecution differently as we receive this counsel from God's Word. We identify them. We don't say, wow, am I glad I'm not them. Am I ever thankful I live in a different place than they do? No, rather we say we understand that the church of Christ is called to suffer and some more than others. We realize that we inhabit an era of persecution and suffering between the comings of Christ and we should both anticipate and prepare for hostility to our faith. This book of 1 Peter helps us navigate these choppy waters. It tells us that the storms will come, and it helps us to understand how we are to journey through. Now, we may not be journeying through actual physical or governmental persecution on some significant level, but we are journeying through with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, and every one of us is facing opposition from a hostile environment, and we need to be prepared and ready for these choppy seas. And so First Peter, I, I, I celebrate the fact that we've been able to go through this book together and to be so prepared and deepened by the text of Scripture because this book reminds us who we are. It's a reality check for American Christians as much as it is hope for the violently persecuted church worldwide. This book wakes us up. It intends to orient and shape our thinking to the realities of suffering for Christ. As Peter concludes the book in chapter 5, if you'll make your way there, he reprises some of the major themes that we've seen through the book. We see in these closing verses three life orientations. I think we can rightly draw these out of the text here. Life orientations that will mark us if we are preparing to navigate the waters of persecution. The first characteristic that we find here is humility fueled by trust in our sovereign God. Remember verse 5 as we looked at it last week, chapter 5 and verse 5, it I think really rightly breaks off in the middle of the verse. I think the verse division here is not ideal. Remember those were added long after the original writers. Likewise, it says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. We took that last week to be a call to those particularly in the assembly who are younger, referring back to the elders that have been described in the first verses of chapter 5. But as we come now to the phrase, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, I think we enter on to the final stretch of the book. Clothe yourselves with humility as you relate to one another. 
It says here, all of you. You see the transition there. He's just talked to the younger people in the assembly. And now he's speaking to everyone. We should all be clothed with humility. That is, to tie around ourselves the servant's apron of humility as we relate to each other. So Christians, now he's talking to believers here who many of them are facing some really stiff opposition. And we're awed by them as they make it through these hard times. We're awed by them, and I think we should be in one sense. But we learn here, Christians who are fit to endure persecution are not brazen, cocky, arrogant, muscular adventurers. The two we've been praying for here today, I don't know if they hardly make 100 pounds, each of them. What they are is they're people of humility. Now think of that in the whole context. They face persecution and they endure it, not because they're adventurers and strong physically, but because they're humble. It's only humble people that are prepared to stand for Christ. They're not easily offended. They're humble. They're not wounded. Wounded pride is not a major problem to them. Certainly it's there, but it's not something with which they struggle in a debilitating way. They're strong enough to take second place and to put the interests of others ahead of their own. They do not trumpet their own worth and downplay the good of others so that they look better. They receive correction graciously. This is not to say they adopt a low self-esteem either, or a high self-esteem for that matter. It means they adopt a robust life orientation that says to God, not my will, yours be done. That's humility. That the will of God would reign supreme in my life. And that includes loving others and putting them first. And so as we relate with other people, he says here, put on the apron of humility and serve one another. The call to humility makes good sense as Peter provides the rationale from Proverbs 3.34. It's also quoted in James 4.6 in a very similar context. But as he says there, continuing on, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There at the end of verse 5. Put on humility as you relate to each other. And here's the motivation. God opposes the proud negatively. Positively, He gives grace to the humble. So rather than relying on their own strength, humble people are empowered by God. Now think about this. This is the revelation of God. It has been given to us. This is profound truth. We need to meditate on it. The sovereign Lord is for the humble. And He is against the proud. I want to think carefully about that. God lets us look at His playbook here. And He says, I want to tell you who I'm behind. I'm behind the people that humbly depend upon Me and put others first. I do not operate well with those that are proud and arrogant and selfish. Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud. He gives grace 
to the humble. Grace, in the context of this book, primarily to deal with opposition. So it's not the strong, it's not the powerful, it's not the courageous that stand in the face of persecution. It's the humble who then receive the power of God. And that's the only power that stands against persecution. There's only one sane response to this, verse 6, and that is humble yourselves then under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. There's the direct implication of verse 6, or verse 5 rather. Knowing that He opposes the proud, knowing that He gives grace to the humble, we should therefore humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's mighty hand speaks of His deliverance. One place we find this phrase over and again in the Old Testament is in the book of Exodus as God delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, they were an oppressed people. And it says over and again in the text of Exodus that under the mighty hand of God, or the mighty hand of God worked to deliver the Israelites. The mighty hand of God disciplines His people as well. Purifying judgment, 4.17, we learn, begins at God's house and His people should accept persecution as a test of faith. They should submit under the mighty hand of God even as they endure such suffering. But the primary emphasis here is that God delivers the humble who suffer and in proper time, the end of verse 6, what will happen? He will exalt you. When will that happen? I think primarily the idea is when Christ returns and vindicates His suffering church. Certainly there can be times when we're vindicated in this life, but primarily it's in the coming age when Christ brings all to rights. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He will exalt those who humble themselves. What a promise. Here's the way to fight persecution. Here's the characteristic of one who trusts in the Lord to deliver them from persecution. Humility. Now you notice verse 7, if your translation reads as mine, casting all your anxieties on Him is not a command as some translations take it. It would be appropriate for it to be translated as command, but it's better to translate it as it is here, casting. It's a big deal. What's, what's the difference? Casting all your anxieties on Him is how we humble ourselves before Him. It's one of the ways. By casting our anxieties on God, we demonstrate humility. Worry is really pride. Humility says, here God, you take this concern this fear of standing for you, this harm that others are doing to me, this trial that I'm facing, you take it and you carry it. I can't. That's humility. Pride says, I'll handle it my way. I've got to deal with this. I have to handle this. I have to make this work the way that I think that it should work. No, humbling ourselves before the Lord means casting our anxieties on Him. And why do we do that, verse 7? Because He cares for you. The suffering believer, whether enduring persecution or some other form of trial, is tempted to doubt this truth. But I want us again to meditate on Scripture here. Let's turn our minds to this statement, and I want us all to think of this. 
He cares for you. This is the revelation of God. This is the promise of His Word. For those who know Him as Savior, He cares for you. I remember one time, uh, my dad has worked with startup churches through a portion of his life, and I remember in one place, the church would have fit in probably the front row here of, of this place, and so it was small and intimate, and he did something that I've never forgotten. He, he took a mirror and he handed it to the first person and said, look in this mirror. And they handed it to the next person. We all looked in the mirror. And I'm thinking, this is weird. <laughs> Where's this going? And I, and, and I remember him saying, you just looked at somebody who God cares very much about. I thought, oh, that's just a strange thing to do in a message. But I've never forgotten it. And I don't know, maybe it's me particularly personally. There's, I hope there's some spiritual work going on here. But I just don't really like looking in a mirror that much. You hear that phrase, that, that uh, somebody's comfortable in their own skin? I'm not comfortable in my own skin. My own skin creeps me out. I know that there's no good thing that dwells in this flesh. Yes, I love the man in the mirror too much. I understand that. But he doesn't impress me. And he causes me all kinds of discomfort. But here is a truth. A solid, permanent, eternal truth with which I'm absolutely comfortable God cares for me. As you know Him as your Savior, you can say this with confidence. What pertains to you matters to Him. This is a truth about the God of Scripture that other religions cannot really proclaim. This is something unique in the revelation of our God, for us to be able to say with confidence based on His Word, not because of the performance of our life or something we've done to appease His anger, but because He has chosen us in Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, it matters to Him about me. What concerns me matters to Him. And if you're a genuine believer, there is only one thing that can take that truth from you. It's not an adversary. It's not a persecutor. It's not Satan himself. The only thing that can take this truth from you is a lack of faith. A lack of confidence in the promise of God. He cares for you. So throw, cast, place upon Him all of your burdens, all of your anxieties. Relating humbly with others, humbling myself under God's sovereign hand, casting my anxieties on Him is all possible because I have faith in this truth that He cares for me. It matters not if the executioner knocks or if opportunity knocks. 
It matters not if temptation knocks or if there's no knocks at all. He cares for me, and on that promise I stand tall and firm. Not because of what is in me, but because of His mercy. Humility fueled by trust in our sovereign God. We find then secondly, coming to verse 8, vigilance marked by resistance to our spiritual adversary. Verse 8, I think we have a bit of a transition in the thought here and can pick out the second idea. Be sober-minded and be watchful. So humility as you relate to others, knowing who God is, knowing that He cares for you, trusting in Him. Now, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded and be watchful. This is a call to spiritual vigilance. The promise that God cares for me should not result in spiritual apathy, but in clear-minded alertness because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is our adversary. He is active in this world. And he's seeking to gulp us down without even chewing is the idea of the Greek behind this. Lions attack suddenly, viciously, when you're not suspecting it. As our adversary, Satan loves to roar at us, to intimidate us. Did you hear that in the song that we sang today? He can roar but not harm. He wants to chew us down. He can roar at us in intimidating power, but humbly depending upon the Lord, we can stand being watchful, first of all, verse 8, and sober-minded. Lethargic, apathetic, daydreaming Christians are like a straggling zebra separated from the pack in Africa. Not a good place to be. Like they always say with the bear, there's two people in a bear, all you've got to do is be faster than the other guy, right? Well, that's what the animals know in a pack. You straggle behind. You get isolated. You take in the sun. You smell the air. You take your ease you're not watchful, and in a moment of time, you can be downed by a lion. That's how we should think as we're preparing for persecution, as we're preparing to walk in faithfulness to the Lord, ever vigilant about Satan's attack. The direction that we receive here in verse 9 is to resist him. He's real. He's against you. He'll come down on you suddenly. He will seek to intimidate you. He will seek to destroy your faith. So be watchful. Be sober-minded. That is level-headed, clear-thinking. And resist Him firm in the faith. Resist Him. Resistance defines a believer's proper orientation and attitude towards Satan. I think the model for this certainly comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When He went out into the wilderness and was tempted, what did He do? He didn't pick up rocks and throw them at Satan. He didn't walk circles around the desert and pray him out of the territory. What did Jesus do when he was tempted in the wilderness? As the temptation of Satan came, he took the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and he fought. He fought depending on the Lord. That's why I think it says here, resist him. Not that there's a direct connection to Jesus, 
but there is a direct connection to the counsel of God. Resist him firm in your faith. Strong faith in God's promises and commands is what allows us to resist the attack of Satan. We should take an aggressive stand of resistance to the devil as Jesus did. Not cave in to Satan's intimidation. This is the orientation, the attitude we need to take. Firm in the faith. Meaning holding fast to your faith in God, I think is the idea. Resisting Satan is not so much about prayer walks and exorcisms. It's about walking with God and exercising faith. As motivation, Peter now draws the attention of his readers to the persecuted church worldwide. Notice it there in verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's no place for self-pity here. There's no place to compare with others who aren't facing the same kind of persecution and wishing you were them. But there is value, there is wisdom in realizing your solidarity with the persecuted church of Christ. If tomorrow at work, if tomorrow at school, if tomorrow in the neighborhood or with a relative, you are ridiculed for your stand for Christ, your faith is attacked in the public realm, what you should be thinking about is not, I really wish I wasn't here. Why do I have to be in this workplace? Why do I have to be in this school? Why do I have to know this person? What you should be thinking is, I'm right now identifying with the persecuted church of Christ. There's people all over the world that are facing ridicule and even violence because of their trust in the Lord. Here am I, the opportunity to identify with them just briefly. With this brotherhood, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but ultimately against demonic forces. And with a proper sense of pride, we should rejoice to identify with that suffering communion. Here's a mindset, an orientation we need to take with us from the counsel that the Apostle Peter gives to us. As Jesus taught us, when you are persecuted, rejoice. For great is your reward in heaven. When you are persecuted, rejoice. For it shows that you identify with the persecuted people of God. Humility fueled by trust in our sovereign God. Vigilance marked by resistance to our spiritual adversary. And then thirdly, as we come to verse 10, confidence supplied by assurance of our eternal vindication. Confidence. Humility. Vigilance. Confidence. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you suffered a little while. What do you think he's comparing with? What's, what's, how's he judging time here? After you suffered a little while. He might be, as some think, he's saying that suffering for Christ will always be limited by God. Well, certainly true. I think here probably we're coming back again to looking to the long view. Suffering for a little while speaks of our suffering in the era of suffering and persecution. When compared to the triumph 
and the era of vindication when Christ returns, this will be seen as just a little while. I, I don't think Peter's playing on people's emotions here. I don't think he is being ignorant of the trial that they're facing. He's just saying, as the Scripture does, our life is a vapor. It's passing away very quickly. And any suffering that we face here is going to be quite limited compared to eternity. And in comparison, it won't compare at all. This is light momentary affliction compared to what heaven's glories will bring. After you've suffered for a little while, after you've endured this walk of suffering and this era of persecution, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will do four things that are mentioned here. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think these are essentially synonymous terms. In fact, as I worked through the Greek term, many of the same words were used to define each of the four. So if you wanted, you could have chosen the same word with each of the four and made it the same, just basically synonymous. But in the end, what it's saying is that God will put everything to rights. He will thoroughly establish His people. Each of these words is the opposite of what Satan is trying to do to us. He, each is the opposite of the persecutor's goal. People want us to let go of our faith in Christ. Satan wants to devour us and take it away. He wants to do everything but restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. He wants to intimidate and, and to bring down. But our sovereign God gives us this promise. This will pass, and you will be established. In glory, none of this will compare. So what do you say to this? But verse 11, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We might understand it more accurately to say to Him is the dominion forever and ever. Either way, we add the verb. But godless human governments have temporary and limited dominion and sometimes use it to harm believers. Satan has temporary and limited dominion as the God of this world system for now. But all dominion and authority and the capacity to write the script of history is written by God alone. And to say this, we say amen and face opposition with courage. The letter is closed beginning at verse 12. As he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it we might take that just as a summary of the book the true grace of god stand in it it's written by sylvanus his role is debated i don't want to get into any great detail here but it was common this phrase by so and so at the end of a letter to identify the one who would deliver the letter many conservative scholars argue that this is all that is meant here and maybe there's some motivations behind that aren't entirely necessary but it seems to me the phrase reads pretty naturally to say that Selvanus served in some role or other in the product in the production of the letter perhaps as a scribe uh, that works real well as you read first and second peter in the greek because they are really different in the way they work themselves out 
in the syntax and even in some degree in the vocabulary. So perhaps he had a hand in this. And we know that God superintends through his Holy Spirit for what he desired to be written to be recorded. We know this is fully the Word of God. We don't really know Sylvanus's role, but wow, would he be an interesting person to meet. This is Silas of other texts of Scripture. This is one who is very much trusted in the uh, spread of the Gospel in the early church. He, he shows up in various places. He clearly had an influence upon others, and Peter is working in connection with him, perhaps even discussing the, uh, the work that is here before them as they pass on this letter but whatever Sylvanus's role again what they have what is recorded here is the true grace of God we're to stand firm in it he says in verse 13 she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does Mark my son who is she again pages upon pages uh, it could be his wife uh, it could be uh, some other individual. It could be a church in Babylon. My conclusion, without going into a lot of discussion on it, is that it's the church at Rome. Babylon at this time was essentially in ruins, virtually uninhabited, and there's no evidence that Peter was ever there or that there was ever a Christian church there at this time. But Rome was at times referred to as Babylon by Christians. I believe that's evidence even in the book of Revelation. There's debate upon that. It's not highly significant other than to say that it certainly seems that what Peter is saying is there are other believers who are sending you greeting, including Mark. We have John Mark here. Remember his family owned a home in Jerusalem? The disciples stayed there often. It served as a very helpful base for them in, the, in Jerusalem. This is the one who abandoned Paul in the first missionary journey and was later restored that Paul came to trust. And again, a man who had significant influence in the early church and a man who was very directly connected to Barnabas, or I'm sorry, rather to Peter. Becoming a trusted partner and colleague, not only of Paul, but also of Peter. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. An appropriate greeting in that day that indicated familial regard. Placed on the kiss placed on the forehead, the cheek, or the hand. It was just their form of warm greeting. It certainly wasn't a cold handshake, maybe more, as some have said, a holy hug. I don't think that it's mandatory that we determine how this uh, translates into our day, but you know, if you go to France, put it into action. You're going to be using a, a kiss on the cheek to greet the church that's there. Here, that might be seen as a little weird, and I don't know that he's asking us to do this as a, as a demand, but for them, it was appropriate. And for us, it's what? It's a reminder that we're the family of God and we should greet one another that way. But there is a formal greeting and it's not simply about being, uh, it's not simply about etiquette. It's about recognizing our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Greeting one another, responding to one another is an important part of conveying the love that we have for each other. Acknowledge and separate and, and sorry, acknowledge and celebrate your familial identity as those redeemed by Christ and as those who are heirs of heaven. That's the idea. And look where he ends. Peace to all of you.
to all of you who are in Christ. These are persecuted believers. These are people who in their experience as the followers of Christ don't find a lot of peace in this world. But we can always speak peace to one another in Christ. David ably summarizes this. I'll paraphrase a bit. But he said, this peace is not the peace of this world, but the blessings of the coming age and its ruler experienced in his family here and now as a foretaste of what is to come. May peace prevail in this assembly as it bespeaks the peace that Christ gives us in a world that is at war. At war with one another and at war with the followers of Jesus Christ throughout this world today, here 2,000 and more years removed, the church of Jesus Christ continues to suffer at a high level. Peace. Peace in Christ. So, the reworking of our minds. Humility. Vigilant resistance to Satan. A fixation on eternal vindication and reward. Our world, the world that you live in every day, is ordered in exactly the opposite direction of this. Pride is the order of the day. Sensual submission to Satan's allures. And a now orientation that ignores eternal accountability. First Peter seeks to radically reorder our thinking and perspective for living. And by God's grace, we're listening. By God's grace, through this series, we as a church have been sanctified to think rightly as God orders our thinking and our perspective. I think it's appropriate to say if you're looking for ease and prosperity by your involvement in this church, if you think that relating to this church is a path to smooth sailing, to a safer, easier life, you probably ought to just sail out the doors today and not come back. But far better would be a total reorientation of your life. To realize that the Christian church does not exist so that Americans can come and be stroked. It exists in part so that we identify with the suffering of the body of Christ until He comes again. It's here that we face the fact that we're in choppy waters. It's here we face the fact that we have believers in this world who in recent hours have given their life for Christ. It's not to turn that off and say, how can I be improved as an American? How can I be proved in prosperity and ease? coming to hear the words of God and seeing ourselves for who we really are. The persecuted body of Christ. And to respond to that in the right way. With courage, with confidence, with peace. Not self-pity. Not withdrawal. But if you come to church and it's really what you're looking for is to be put at ease and to be helped along 
in your life so that things just get better and easier and smoother in the sailing. Very, very likely that you need to be born again. You need to be remade, transformed by the power of God. We're called in verse 7 to cast all of our anxieties on Christ. In that same way, you must cast your trust upon Jesus' sacrificial death in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. You must trust this message if there is any hope of being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established before God in eternity. Apart from this sort of spiritual transformation, you will stand before God as one who has repeatedly violated His perfect law and will incur His just anger. That's your future. Turn to Him in hope and trust. Jesus is not calling you to prosperity and ease. He's calling you to take up your cross and follow Him. You'll never do anything more risky. You'll never do anything in this life that's better. Turn from your sin and repentance and trust Christ's provision today. We call you to that. He calls you to that. For those of us who know Christ, it's vital that we see who we are, that we anticipate and prepare for these choppy waters of opposition and persecution. I think this series may be far more timely in preparation than we perhaps know. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know quite how long common grace will continue to hold back the lion. But you don't have to be all that old to see things are changing. And I thought it was just amazing to me that I ran across this article, this statement uh, by Kevin Bowder as I was working through this text here. It's a long statement, but I think it's worthy of our consideration here today. American Christianity has operated throughout its entire history with what could be called a daylight paradigm. It has been able to adopt the basic assumption that most Westerners, and especially most Americans, had significant exposure to biblical ideas and held a generally Judeo-Christian understanding of virtue. It has been able to assume that a broadly Christian outlook occupied the cultural high ground, if not in the centers of power, at least among the masses. For every, from every indication, those days are now past. The cultural momentum has shifted toward a radicalized version of secularism and pluralism. Repressive legislation and public policies are already being implemented. Already governments are employing the use of force to deprive Christians of their livelihoods. While no human can see the future, it will likely hold worse sanctions for people who are loyal to God. The heathen have always raged, and the kings of the rulers of the earth have always taken counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. They have always wished to throw off the bonds of divinely imposed moral restrictions. But when such people have been held in check, as they have been in America for hundreds of years, they are eager for payback. They are not contented to allow Christians to live out their virtues, certainly not in any public way, they will use the armed might of the state to force Christians to recognize and participate in vice. They will punish those Christians who refuse. 
it is certain that they will do these things because they are doing them already. In short, we are standing on the edge of a precipice. We have been living in the daylight. That is, in a civilization that has been shaped largely by biblical perspectives and norms, we are about to plunge into the night. We are at the door of a dark age. Perhaps we are. Pure pessimism? Presumption on the levels of common grace that God will continue to pour out upon us in our lifetime? Prophetic? Only time will tell. But by the grace of God, this book of 1 Peter helps us look through the gathering shadows And to set our focus on the horizon, on the lights lining eternity's shoreline. As the redeemed of Christ, we journey on, not in fear, not in sensual lethargy, but in humility, vigilance, and confidence. Confidence that our God be- to, to our God belongs the dominion forever and ever. Confidence that He has called us to His eternal glory. Confidence that He will enable us to endure the era of suffering and inherit the era of vindication and triumph. Humility, vigilance, confidence. So that whatever dangers our passage on this to the other side may bring, we've been warned We've been prepared and we've been counseled to cast our anxieties upon the one who has the power and the will to bring us safely home. Let's bow for prayer. There's no question in our mind, Lord, that you are preparing us to stand We don't know what we're facing. We don't know where this is all headed. But we know that we inhabit a world that would love to destroy our faith. That wants us to join in on its sensual ways, its God-denying ideas, philosophies, and practices. Its wicked attitudes, which it celebrates publicly in legislation, in media, in entertainment, in a thousand ways surrounding us every day. We ask that you will empower us to stand. We ask that you would help us not to be drugged by the materialism and the amusement that surrounds us in this world but that our faith would be solid. Help us to relate to one another in humility, thus inviting your power, vigilantly resisting and watching for Satan's attack, and with confidence as we set our eyes on the future. We pray that you'll help us to that end. And for anyone that's not on Christ's ship, 
pray that you'll make it clear that that ship's going across in troubled waters. But it will deliver them from the fire and conflagration that is consuming the shoreline they're clinging to. Help them to get in the ship. Open their eyes to the need. And Lord, we pray, by your grace and your grace alone, that you'll bring us safely home. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Humility, vigilance, and confidence.